was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Artistic Director of the Gingold Group, David Stoller. The Gingold Group creates theater and theater-related programs that promote the humanitarian ideals central to the work of activist playwright George Bernard Shaw, including universal human rights, the freedom of thought and speech, the equality of all living beings, and the responsibility of individuals to promote societal progress. Now in its 16th year, it is the only theater group ever to perform all 65 of Shaw's works, and stars like Lillianne Montevecchi, George George S. Irving and Marion Seldes are among those who have participated in these monthly readings. They have also put on six larger off-Broadway productions, including the currently running Mrs. Warren's Profession, starring Karen Ziemba and Robert Cuccioli, which is playing its final day off-Broadway today, the 20th, and is something no theatergoer should miss. As a performer, David appeared on Broadway in Cabaret, Hello Dolly with Pearl Bailey, Evita, and more. He has created amazing theater on all sides of the profession. So now, without further ado, the great David Stoller. Well, I'd love to start um, at the beginning of your uh, interest in theater by asking how that happened, how you first became interested in theater. How kind of you, Charles, to ask. I, uh, I... I came from a family that was always very interested in all aspects of the arts, music, painting, dance, theater. My parents, my elder brother and sister, my grandparents uh, all valued the arts as an extension of the voice of the individual, the importance of, of expressing the self. And I, I was not privileged to have the kind of outgoing verbal skills that you have at such a young age. I was actually nonverbal for quite a time of my young life and was very shy and very happy to be invisible. And I'm not sure what it was, but one day I just realized my life is too goddamn short. I don't want to hide from it. I have a responsibility to be an active member of my own life. And that really happened when I went to high school. As a freshman in high school, I made a conscious decision to be somebody else. The way a lot of people decided to reinvent themselves, especially somebody like George Bernard Shaw who decided he was a shy, disenfranchised, unwanted child and decided he would pretend to be someone who was extremely confident and created this persona of GBS, 
uh, the way Cary Grant did. He turned his Archie Leach in person into Cary Grant. So many of us have done that. So eventually I realized one day I no longer had to pretend. And part of that was as a freshman, I decided to see what it would be like to perform. And as so many of us have, Charles, we found that by joining the arts, especially the theater, it's like joining a family. You get to create the family you want. And that's the way my life has been ever since. What about you? What started your interest in the theater? Oh, well, my, my parents and grandparents, as like you, were interested, although not actually involved in the arts. Um, and I think for me, it was when I saw the uh, On the Town revival that they did that. Yeah, On the Town, interestingly, Charles, was one of the works of the stage that first interested me as well. Mama had seen the original tour of the show in Chicago. And I had asked her a few times, what had she seen on stage that seemed life-changing to her? One of them was the original production of The Glass Menagerie with Laurette Taylor before it went to Broadway. And the other one was On the Town. She said it just enlightened an aspect of life to her. And so I'd always been curious about the show. And one day the movie was on, the MGM movie with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. And she sat and watched it with me, a little black and white TV in the kitchen. And she became just inflamed. She was furious that it wasn't using the original Broadway score. So I found that studio recording that was made in the 60s, I believe it was, with some of the original cast, including Comden Green and Nancy Walker and Chris Alexander. And I agree with you. It's just a gorgeous score, the ballet music. And so little of it was used in the movie. And uh, the idea of realizing in that play that when it was produced, when it was open, it was a very dark time during World War II. And there were all these men in uniform going off to fight World War II, not knowing if they'd ever come back. So the idea of living life as fully as we can. It's a great reminder, isn't it? For us, <laughs> it never is. to take our time for granted. What was it about the show that enchanted you? Well, I think it, I don't know that there was any particular, of course, uh, I love Michael Rupert in it and his song, <laughs> um, and of course the dancing. Playing a role that's usually caught. Oh, um, so I'd be curious to ask you, um, right from the beginning with your interest in theater, was Shaw involved in it as well, or did that not come till later? No, actually, I had been going to boys boarding school from, a very, from about the age of five, and um, my godmother was the eccentric English actress named Hermione Gingle, who you might have heard, you might have seen in the movies Gigi or The Music Man. And she was in the original cast of a Little Night Music. But she, she revered George Bernard Shaw, not, because, not necessarily because he wrote all these amazing great plays, but because he was such a humanitarian. He was an activist. He fought so tirelessly for women's rights in particular. But 
women's rights, men's rights, gay rights at a time when he could have been imprisoned for it, not for being homosexual, but for supporting it. Uh, children's rights, even animal rights. So when I was 10, she sent me a letter saying if I expected her to respond to the questions that I was writing her, I would have to come up with better questions. <laughs> so she sent me a copy of Shaw's epic play, Man and Superman, to start going through and just looking up or asking her anything I didn't understand, which is pretty much the whole damn play. But the play is very much about the importance of not being afraid to be open to life's journey, like so many works of art, like On the Town, and really all of Shaw's plays, the idea of literally and figuratively not hiding from life, not hiding from who we are or want to be. As an actor, I studied him and was in a lot of his plays. I played Higgins both in Pygmalion and My Fair Lady about 11 times. <laughs> and during the last Bush administration, I was really concerned about basic human rights and free speech because journalists were being fired from major networks for speaking out against the administration. And so I got together with some pals and we thought, well, let's, let's start a reading series. Let's start a company to produce these reading series called Project Shaw. And we'll start with Shaw and include discussion groups so that we can fulfill Shaw's mission of art to inspire or provoke peaceful discussion and activism. And that's what we did. And that was 16 years ago. And since then, we've done eight full productions and we have three educational programs and we develop new plays and we have these symposiums and lectures and discussion groups. And I just <laughs> sometimes wonder how the hell it all happened. But yes, yeah, so my interest in Shaw has been lifelong, not necessarily because he's my favorite playwright, but because I believe in the power of art to transform. And this is of course starting right with the present, but um, why did you choose Mrs. Ward's profession as the show to bring back after the pandemic? Well, I love that the question is, why did I choose Mrs. Warren's profession? Well, I am not the madam of a whorehouse, but <laughs> the play Mrs. Warren's profession. A, a natural question for you to ask. Why do you think it made sense to produce Mrs. Warren's profession at this moment of history? Well, I think because it's about questions of morality and how you define like class and... Excellent, it's a good answer. I, as a producer and director, part of the decision was we needed one of the smaller casts unless I really wanted to conceptualize and take one of the, you know, the last show we did was Caesar and Cleopatra, which has over 40 speaking roles and lasts several hours. And I cut it down to seven people <laughs> in two hours. So I thought, unless we really want to do that with another play, we need a smaller cast of six a way to somehow conceptualize the look so that we don't have a lot of sets. And looking through all the plays, I realized that this particular play 
is very much about six people needing to find a way to move into the future. All six characters have been in a way hiding from the truth or their emotional life. And it really takes all six coming together, which is very Chekhovian, which is how, what inspired Shaw. It takes all six characters for that to happen. With the two women, you know, it's Shaw, so the dominant characters are usually women. With the two women, these are two extremely brilliant businesswomen. These are two women who revere mathematics, the idea of the black and white science of knowing that the figures will always add up. And it also allows them not to deal with their emotional life. It allows them to sublimate their emotional life in their work, which is, which is a character device that Shaw used a lot, like with Henry Higgins, someone who's deeply passionate about his work, but is afraid of people, especially of women. So he sublimates all that into his science of the study of speech. And it takes Eliza Doolittle to force him to deal with his own humanity, his own emotional life. And that's what these two women in this play force each other to do, to find out who they are and to face the future as more complete human beings. And as we're all emerging from this pandemic, from this period of being shut in, it seemed to make sense to create the opportunity for our community to come together and to share what I think is a truly brilliant play about the need to be a part of the world, to be a part of our own life, and to be contributive human beings. Did you get any of that from the play? Yeah, I, I... <laughs> okay. And how did you uh, go about cutting down this particular play? You know, I didn't have to cut that much, which seems to really surprise people. It's blissfully short. <laughs> it's, you know, he wrote some plays like Back to Methuselah, which take nine hours. And we didn't want to subject people to that. So <laughs> what I did was, you know, there are four scenes. And back in the day, when these plays were presented, there would be, the curtain would come down between each one and there would be a long interval, half an hour to an hour of people getting drunk and smoking cigars and socializing. And so people would come back and the curtain would go up and he'd have to remind them what had just happened. So I just cut all that. <laughs> I just cut all the redundancy. And the reason we're doing it one hour and 40, actually it's been coming down at 139, uh, is the challenge of having an interval at this theater was that we would have to schedule it with the other productions happening in the theater because of COVID. And I just decided that was just too annoying. And I just didn't <laughs> want to subject people to it. And luckily it's really been no problem but you know there are a lot of broadway musicals that last that long for just one act and i'd be curious to know how do you choose something to be a full production as opposed to one of the readings that you do at symphony space well the readings uh i mean we've already done all of shaw 65 plays in fact we're the only group anywhere on the planet that have ever done them all in performance 
I don't know that anyone ever else wanted to, but um, all of our plays deal with the idea of activism and the empowerment of the disenfranchised. And a lot of these plays can be done as readings because they don't require sets and costumes and lighting and all that. With our full productions, so much thought and planning goes into it. This one in particular, but we were actually in the pre-production stages of planning to do a production before the shutdown. We were going to do Shaw, The Devil's Disciple, which is about the American Revolution. And it was gonna be done before the election because it's very much about anti-imperialism, about fighting tyranny, the importance of independence and standing up to demagogues. And I really wanted to present that before our last election. Uh, since the election came and went happily, um, I felt that we didn't really need that particular message as vitally. Does that answer your question? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to actually, I'd be curious to know, what is the casting process like for these plays? Do you ask people, do they audition or how does that? Both, both. With Karen, um, I called her up and asked if she wanted to do a play, <laughs> basically. And, it, and once she said yes, I went through her agent. Uh, but we did hire a lovely casting director, a really lovely person, Stephanie Inquit, uh, because it was the same thing with Robert Cuccioli, who played Cross, and Raphael Nash Thompson, who played Reverend Sam Gardner, and David Lee Huen, who played Frank. These four actors I've worked with many times. And I just called them up, said, we're doing a play. Are you available? Want to do it? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. I'll call your agent. We'll set it up. That left two characters. And so we did have auditions. And I cast the other two characters, having never met them in person. It was done online, which is so bizarre. It was, uh, well, people who might be listening to this will just hear us, but I have the joy of being able to actually see you, Charles. We're doing this Zoom, and it's really fun to be able to see your lovely shining face. But it's really weird in what is essentially a job interview and trying to assess what someone would be like in an actual room you know, the energy, the dynamic, what they look like standing up. You know, it's, just, it's so strange. But we really lucked out. We cast Nicole King as Vivi. Um, and speaking of standing up, I actually asked her to and wanted to find out how tall she was because I realized she's considerably taller than Karen Ziemba, who plays her mother. And I had to think about that and I realized, well, that's great. They're not supposed to really look like each other in the play. And the idea of Vivi having this sort of dominant look about her, I think really works for the play. What do you think? Yes, I agree. I agree. Okay. And with Alvin, who plays Prayed, um, it was the same thing. I just, he had a wonderful quality 
and seem to understand the heart and needfulness of that character. But it's really fun to just call up people I know and just say, hey, you want to put on a show? <laughs> Which I do a lot for our readings, but I also, I very often will see someone performing and look them up on Facebook if they don't have a website. And if anyone's listening to this who is a performer and doesn't have a website, for God's sakes, you can get a website for free. Get a website and put on your contact information because I cannot tell you how many people I would have hired if I could have just found out how to reach them. I'm not kidding. And Equity, Actors' Equity Association does not automatically have your contact information or is willing to give it out if you haven't given them that okay. So anyone who asked it happens to be listening to this who is an actor, take responsibility for it. Um, we'd actually done a reading of this play uh, about a year and a half ago online for Stars in the House. We did eight readings of eight, uh, plays for Seth Rudetsky as benefits for the Actors Fund. And it was so thrilling to hear the play again that that's really when I decided that would be the play we should do. Oh. And speaking of the uh, role of Parade, you had also played it opposite Dana Ivey at the Irish Rep as Mrs. Who told you that? <laughs> oh. How dare you do your research? Yeah, I did. And that was in 2005. And I grew... It, for those of you who can't see me, which is all of you, I have a beard, happily. But I first grew it for, for that role because Dana kind of freaked out because I was kind of young for the part and I didn't have any white in my beard or my hair at the time. I do now. But, you know, I had to put white in my beard at the time. And, uh, I decided I would try to play the character Prade in a way I'd never seen it, which is not really the way Alvin is playing it. Um, I, I loved the play and I loved being in it. I loved exploring it, especially since Parade does not have a heavy load to carry in the play. But it was during the run of that play in the basement of the Irish Rep that I was putting this company together. And everyone tried to talk me out of it, everybody. Uh, too ambitious, couldn't be done, never get to people. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if we would last six months. I didn't know if we'd last one month. And um, <laughs> here we are 16 years later. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me that Shaw is so rarely done. And I think part of it is because he doesn't always read that well on the page. You don't realize how funny the plays are. At the performance you saw, I hope that people laughed and were- Yes, yes. Oh, God. It's, it's sometimes hard to get it off the page. Also, there's so much ink on the page. So many words. Have you ever acted? I have, I've acted a little bit at, um, actually at the 92nd Street Y, they do some sort of junior shows. And what have you played, Charles? Oh, well, I did. Um, I'm about to do uh, The Music Man as Harold Hill. You are? Yes, I will. I this will. is thrilling news. Oh, then you've seen the movie. Yes, yes, I have. So 
yourself remind me is is Eulalie uh, McKechnie Shin. Yes, she's. What right. the hell planet did she come from? You're looking at Hermione in that movie, and you think, "Oh my God, what is she doing in Iowa? How did that happen?" <laughs> oh yeah, I love uh, Hermione Gingold and in in John Murray Anderson's Almanac too. I have the what recording him. Oh, she's. You know, it's interesting talking about persona. She um. She was never what you would call a pretty girl. She always looked like one of the witches from Grimm's fairy tale. <laughs> But she could make you believe. It's like in a little light music. You could, she could make you believe that she had been the most gorgeous enchantress that would get kings and princes falling at her feet. And she created this extreme persona, which you can see in movies, especially in things like Bell Book and Candle. But in real life, she was quiet, intellectual, well-read political, thoughtful. She was a great listener. She was kind and gentle. And that's why it's always so fun to see people I know, like Hermione and <laughs> the music man. One Grecian urn, Balzac. But most, most brilliant performers I know that are able to achieve that are not that in real life. And um, to go back to Hermione Gingold, I believe that one of the first readings of Shaw that you saw with Laurence Olivier was in her apartment. Well, you have been doing your own work. Yeah, I was a kid and uh, I was a teenager and uh, Hermione Gingold's agent was the legendary Goldman. Oh my God, I've just blanked. Um, but, he was the uh, agent for all the old golden age type people, especially from the movies that had um, sort of passed their prime. And he would hold these cocktail parties. And I would be sitting in the corner as this kid, just looking at all these people. I was the only one, of course, I'd never heard of, but there was Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright and Joan Fontaine and Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan and Helen Hayes and Marion Seldes, and really everyone you could think of, Maureen Stapleton, Myrna Loy, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And Hermione mentioned that she and I used to get together in love with some of friends of hers and mine and read some of these plays. He said, well, when's the next one? I said, well, it'll be Sunday, tea time. I said, all right, I'll send some people over. And Hermione decided we would read Pygmalion but she wanted to read the role of Alfred B. Doolittle. I said, okay, okay. And the doorbell rang and it was Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan. They decided they wanted to be in the reading. Okay, the doorbell rang and it was Anita Luce who wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She wanted to be in the reading. The doorbell rang and it was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and his wife whose name I could never remember and they wanted to be in the reading. And her best friend, Chris Hewitt, uh, was there and he wanted to be in it. And then Maureen Stapleton and then Helen Hayes and the doorbell rang and it was Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright. So 
Hermione's maid, Mary Jones, brought in the tea and we all hung out, started to read and Olivier was reading Higgins and Jean-Pierre Wright was reading Eliza and we're all parceling out the roles and midway through tea turned into cocktails. And midway through, Olivier and Paul Wright decided they would change roles. They would switch. And she would read Higgins and he would read Eliza. And you know, the great lesson for me was uh, giving me permission to kick things around, to shake things up, to realize there's no one way to approach any play, any role, that if you're fully committed and justify choices, almost anything goes. And they were brilliant. They were a little tipsy, but they were hysterical. And, and so all those years later, when I started presenting these plays, every time we would do them, it would be so much fun to do that, to shake things up, to try things completely different. Uh, we've done several readings of Mrs. Warren's profession, and every time, done it with Tanya Pinkins, Tyne Daly, Harriet Harris, Blair Brown, every time with someone completely different, with a completely different approach. And everyone was valid. Everyone told the truth. Everyone told a story. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I guess presenting these plays is sort of in my blood, Charles. Yeah. And as part of the uh, Shaw project, one of the things you did, I believe, was interview people who knew Shaw and who had worked with him. And so what were some of the things about him that you heard? People who knew him really loved him. I got to know when I was in London, I got to know the actress, Wendy Hiller, who was in the movie Pygmalion and in the movie Major Barbara. And he's the one that cast her. And I was in London when she was in, playing the lead in Driving Miss Daisy. And I would go and sit with her in her dressing room between a matinee and evening show several times. And we just tell me stories. I got to know Rex Harrison, who was in, the film Major Barber with her, and then of course, My Fair Lady, which was after he died. But it was lovely to get to know these people who, well, Rex Harrison, I think, never really spoke well of anybody and nobody really spoke well of him, but I really enjoyed hearing his stories. Uh, the idea that Shaw really lived his life determined to try to be a public servant. That he wrote his plays and he marched and he made speeches to provoke. And he was such a satirist, he was so ironic. He was like um, Stephen Colbert. The idea of saying things deliberately to provoke and very often jokingly. The problem now is because of YouTube, so many of these little clips have surfaced of him saying things cut out of context. It's like he would make this speech telling people, how can you believe, how can you be following Hitler or Mussolini? And then he would make this, then he would go into imitating them as if he's making their speech. And so if you go on YouTube, you see these little clips of him pretending to be Mussolini or something and saying horrible things. 
And out of context, people then think, oh, well, that's who Shaw was. And I get that a lot. Uh, <laughs> he was not supporting fascists. He was not anti-Semitic. Some of his most wonderful roles that he wrote were in support of these disenfranchised people, including people of color. Uh, he, he believed that no one had the right to dictate to anyone who and what we should be. So getting back to your question, that was the one constant that everyone I ever met who knew him said, is that he was a rascal. And he could say the most outrageous things to get a response. But that basically, he was this brilliant brain inside a rather insecure person who just didn't understand the inequality, the senseless meanness and hate that people can perpetrate. Uh, I long for the day when Shaw is no longer relevant. I don't think that will happen in my lifetime. But meanwhile, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. And if you could, I'm of course asking you a lot of questions right now, but if you could go back in time and ask Shaw himself a question, do you have an idea of what it, what it would be? Oh, there would be so many. Oh. I don't know, maybe it's, just as well that I can't. What if I met him and I didn't like him? <laughs> no, I'm really lucky to have been able to meet a lot of people that I did idolize, like Catherine Hepburn. I got to know people who I just worshiped. She was another one who would do and say the most outrageous things just to be outrageous. But a sweet soul, a sweet soul. With Shaw, gee, I don't know, who would you like to be able to go back in time to meet? Who, who is not alive or who's alive that you wish you could meet and ask a question? Meaning a, a political figure or, or what kind of? Up to you. Oh. It could be Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> who would you like to meet? Well, this is a little, it's a little bit, I mean, he's not alive anymore, but he was pretty recently. Um, I would love to have been able to talk to Neil Simon. Oh. And I will tell you that many people that I truly admire, people that I know or have met, have often told me how inspired they were to create because of the work of Shaw, like sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you can see behind me. Here's, uh, you know, you know who Al Hirschfeld was, the artist. Yes, yes, I do. Sorry, your screen broke. But here's Al Hirschfeld who signed this to me. But he also did this drawing of Sondheim, and uh, on it. He wrote, look what I can do with just three fingers on my left hand. <laughs> but Sondheim has mentioned several times how influenced he was by the work of Shaw and even wrote Shaw into one of his plays, Frogs, the character of Shaw. Uh, Tony Kushner, when I met him, mentioned how completely influenced he was by Shaw. Uh, Tom Stoppard, uh, I was fortunate enough to converse with more than once, who told me that it was the work of George Bernard Shaw that interested him in writing in the first place. And I think for all these people, it's for different reasons. But I think just generally, 
it is about the humanity, the exploring the sense of self and the importance of our communicating with ourselves and with our community. And to move away from Shaw for just a little bit, I would, love, uh, I would love to ask about some of the things that you did as an actor before you, before you started Project Shaw and Fall. Oh, Charles, you know, I was lucky. I was pretty much always working. I mean, I'd never heard of myself, but I was, I was really lucky that I was always employed. Uh, I was in like about 50 off or off off Broadway plays. I did some Broadway, but a lot of regional theaters and TV, soap operas, commercials. And I feel grateful that when I started this company, it was not to make a career transition. I was employed. I had another show coming up. I uh, was being offered things. And I, oddly enough, still get offers. I just can't do them. This is a full-time job running this company. Um, and I can't say I miss it. But while I was an actor, I loved, as I love now, the community of it, the communicative element of it, the, the handing on the torch to young people like yourself the importance of the continuity of art and the joy of learning about life and myself and the world around me through the perspective of other people. As I say, I, I got to play a lot of really good roles like Higgins, but I don't, I don't miss it. I guess because I'm so busy and so active working with actors and designers and publicists and marketing people and <laughs> writing grants, proposals and grant reports. And I still feel very much a part of it all. Yeah. But I don't think I fully appreciated the glory of what it is to be an actor until I stopped being one. After you play Harold Hill, you and I have to have another conversation. You can tell me what it felt like for you. And um, among the shows that you did uh, on Broadway was Hello Dolly with Pearl Bailey. And what was that experience like of working well, with Well, I was, I think I was like 16 or something. I'd been brought to New York to be in the apprentice company of the Joffrey Ballet. And it just sort of happened. I mean, I went, I'd gone back to Chicago to visit my mom and someone I had already worked with was in Hello, Dolly with Pro Bailey in Chicago. And they had just fired somebody who was understudying the role of Cornelius and I met Pro Bailey and she immediately decided that I had to be in the show. I mean, I auditioned for her in her dressing room and I was supposed to go back to school and she had to talk me into taking it. You know, I was a dancing waiter. I was in the chorus and covering the role of Cornelius as a teenager. And she said, well, why don't you just come with us to Los Angeles and then we're going to Broadway and then you can go on with whatever you were doing. <laughs> that really is how it happened. Uh, I, 
have to confess that I was offered various Broadway shows over the years, which I did not take because of other things that were going on in my life. I won't tell you what they were. Maybe they were good choices on my part, maybe not. But uh, for instance, with Evita, I was actually in Los Angeles studying cello with Rostropovich at USC and putting myself through school by doing TV shows. And I just shot a pilot and I was sure I was gonna be a TV star. And I knew Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim through Hermione. And they asked me to fly to New York to audition for Sweeney Todd. And I did. And I was a baritone, not a tenor. They had asked me if I would like to be in it and believe it or not. I said, no, thank you. I was going back to LA <laughs> to be in this TV show, which then of course, was not picked up. And then Hal Prince called and said, we're, we're gonna be doing this show called Evita. Um, do you wanna be in the course and maybe cover some of the parts? And again, I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and Hermione got on the phone and she screamed at me. She said, you don't say no to Hal Prince. So I came to New York and I, it was really fun to be in it. Um, it was like my day job. I studied with Uta Hagen and I was in all my children, a soap opera while I was in it, shooting during the day. And it was really fun. And Hal Prince then asked me to be in his revival of Cabaret with Joe Gray. As a nice Jewish boy from Illinois, I played the Nazi. <laughs> and then I went back to study again at RADA and worked at the National and was doing more TV and a lot of regional theaters and a lot of voiceovers. Um, and then suddenly I'm doing this. It's, it's the steamroller of time and life that I'm just kind of letting roll around me. What would you and like? I, I would love to ask about Hello Dolly, but you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but did you, ever, did you ever see the more sort of difficult side of Pearl Bailey that some people talked about? No, but everybody hated her. Um, and I have to confess, I, I didn't quite understand why. Um, the people that hated her the most were the cat it when i was in it of course it was not the all-black cast um i've never been all black but uh it was a fully integrated cast she called it her rainbow company and the people that resented her were the people in the cast of color who felt she was not picking up the torch to be a spokesperson for the movement of racial equality. Also, she was supporting some Republicans at the time. And what I understood that I think they did not was that it was just purely show business politics on her part, because privately she was a liberal, uh, but there was a Republican in the White House and she got him to come to the show and got on the news and got invited to the White House. And uh, she did have a temper. The guy who was playing Vandergelder, unfortunately, had a bit of a drinking problem. 
and she called the whole company on stage and was unkind to him in front of everyone. And as only someone who is uh, an insensitive teenager as I was, I followed her to her dressing room and told her that I felt that that was not an appropriate thing to do. And I fully expected to be fired. What happened was she slammed over dressing room shut and pushed me down in the chair and thanked me and thanked me. And we became friends and we had a correspondence right through to the end of her life. When I went back to school, um, that's a very long way of answering your question, but I knew she could be difficult. And when you consider what she had to go through in life, the indignity she had to suffer as a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman of color dealing with the kind of hateful, horrible abuse and disrespect that she had to deal with. And with that persona of Pearly May and that people felt entitled to treat her disrespectfully, that she, by that point in her life, was having none of it, none of it. She was pushing back. And I understood that. Um, she, she, did, she was very open-minded and supportive of the gay and lesbian community, but not publicly, which was another reason why a lot of people in the cast felt resentful toward her. She could have, but remember, this was this was the Stone Age. This was the seventies. This was before AIDS. This was at a time when she, the Pearl Bailey and Hello Dolly machine, was going, and she had to be the captain. Yeah. she had to get people there, and to love her. It's a long way of answering your question, Charles. Mm -hmm. Sorry. That, no, but that was very interesting. And another, um, of course, great star who you mentioned, a, a very different kind of star was Joel Grey in Cabaret. And well, Joel is a good friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, I'm very grateful that we're a part of each other's lives. Yeah. What a brilliant actor and artist and photographer. Yeah. What a brilliant friend he is. And what a great heart that he has and is so willing to share it with the community. Yeah. And if I can ask about one more of your acting credits, I'm always intrigued by shows that have closed out of town. And for you, that was Leave It to Jane with uh, Faith Prince and Rebecca Luker. Well, but that was never supposed to do anything but be out of town. That was at the oh, Good Speed Opera oh. House. And, um, so funny that you mentioned that because Rebecca's uh, husband, Danny Burstein, just texted me. I'm meeting him after our interview. Oh. Uh, and uh, it was Rebecca Luker's professional debut, 1985. I was already an old timer. And uh, it was at the Goodspeed Opera House and it was supposed to have a limited run. In fact, it went on much longer than it was going to. Some producer, picked it up and we toured it briefly, but it was never supposed to come to New York. I played a football hero, which is a stretch, but uh, Rebecca Luker and Faith Prince and I had the best time. 
uh, Rebecca, I don't suppose you ever would have had a chance to see her on stage, did you? No, no, I never. She was incandescent. Aside from having the most crystalline voice you can imagine in person, you've heard recordings, but it was truly like angels singing. And on stage, she was just magic. She was fully formed. The minute, the first day I met her, the first day of rehearsal, you could tell this is a star. Same thing with Faith Prince, who's still very active. Um, so different. And <laughs> both just magical beings. How lucky we are to live in a world where such beings exist. Yeah. So I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I would love to talk about um, why she would not, which was the unfinished shop play that you had oh. by lots of different writers. Um, well, um, when Shaw died at the age of 94 in 1950, he was in the middle of writing his last, what turned out to be his last play, Why She Would Not. And there's very little there. And it's what he wrote was not particularly compelling or interesting. Uh, but I don't know if you realize he was, even at the age of 94, a pistol. And there had been a rainstorm at his country home in England. And he was impatient with the gardener to cut a branch down from an apple tree that had been pulling uh, shingles off the top of his house. So he went and got the ladder and climbed up <laughs> the top of his house at the age of 94 with a saw and cut off the branch and everything was fine. But on his way down, he slipped and fell and there were injuries and eventually he died. But what was on his desk <laughs> was this rather dreadful unfinished play. And since we had already gone through all of his plays in the series, and I didn't know what we were gonna do next. This is before we actually started doing full production. So I asked a bunch of people, writers, if they wanted to each write their own version of how they would end this play. <laughs> so we just did this sort of special gala evening where I got a bunch of actors together and we first presented what Shaw had written. And then we presented each writer's British version. It was, version. It was hysterically fun. Uh, I don't recommend that anyone ever do what Shaw wrote of why she would not, but... Um, Let's just say it's not Man and Superman or Pygmalion. But yeah, that, that, was, that was what finished our first cycle of doing all the plays. We've done all of them at least twice, uh, including some plays of his that we did that had never been performed in this country before. Don't ask me what they were, because now I can't remember. <laughs> but I do. But uh, I heard from brilliant scholar and author, Sir Michael Holroyd, one day having not yet met him, congratulating me and thanking me for doing whatever the play was because he said it was the first time it was ever done in the United States. I thought, oh, cool. Okay then. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Sir Michael. And going through all of these 65 plays, other than this last one, were there ones you found that you thought were not particularly good or that you wouldn't want to do again? You bet. <laughs> But some of them we did that he wrote as parodies. Some of them he wrote just to be a rascal. Some of them were very short. Some of them are only like five pages long. Uh, 
uh, there are indeed a few plays that I find less thrilling than others. But then you get a play like Mrs. Warren's Profession or Pygmalion or Man and Superman or Arms and the Man. Uh, these plays that just sparkle, that could not be written by anyone else, that, that say things in a way that no one else could say them. It's, it's been a lot of fun, but you know, we've also done other, aside from the new plays we develop, which we plan on producing, um, plays by, you know, we recently did uh, the play that inspired the musical Chicago called Chicago by Maureen Watkins. And it was absolutely, the play is brilliant. Also, we had it with Robert Cuccioli playing the lawyer. Uh, just as a reading, but it's been so much fun to discover some of these plays that, you know, what's astonishing is as brilliant as the musical is, the play it's based on doesn't need the songs. In fact, it's actually far more sardonic and bracing and political than the musical is. We've done plays by uh, a lot of American and European women playwrights of the time, like Elizabeth Roberts, uh, plays that never get done, that are also extremely political. It's, it's been such a wonderful journey. And uh, the next play we're planning on doing as a reading in person is on December 13th, I think it is, whatever that Monday is, with J.O. Sanders and uh, God's sake, sorry, it's been such a long day. I just got in from the theater where I was painting the deck of the stage because we're being filmed by the Lincoln Center Archives. Oh. Uh, and I wanted to make sure everything looked right. We're doing a play called Village Wooing in person. It's a two-character play. And, uh, and it'll be with J.O. Sanders and Marianne Plunkett, who are oh. married, and two brilliant, brilliant actors. Jay is in Girl of the North Country now. And I'm not sure what our next in-person readings will be. We might go back to doing some online, because quite frankly, I, I don't know what's happening with in-person theater. It's been really hard <laughs> doing this. It's been really hard. And I'm so grateful to you for having come to see it. Oh, it was wonderful. Oh, I so didn't cool. know if anyone would come. We just, we had a board meeting with the staff and just decided, you know what? This is what we're supposed to do. And if we go down, might as well go down in flames. <laughs> we're just giving it a try. And amazingly, not only are people coming, it's like today, we had a full house of people who bought tickets and got here on a New York marathon day. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so impressed that people like yourself are, are still eager and interested to be a part of it all. That's the point, isn't it? And I'd love to just close with one question, which is something I ask everyone, which is what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Starting out doing what? Well, starting out in theater. Oh, that's like, what would you ask Jesus? Um, 
All right, I will try to answer that, Charles. The advice I would give is to be brave, to be honest, to be open to yourself and the world, to be kind, to never, to try never to get in your own way, which is what we all seem to do best, isn't it? We all seem to have a great talent for just getting in our own goddamn way. And not to use art to hide, but to use art, to use the theater, to better know yourself, to be a better contributive member of society, to enjoy the ride, to enjoy the collaboration, to find to find the song in your heart and be willing to sing it loudly. That's what I would tell people. That's, that's great advice. And thank you for doing this. It's been just wonderful. And I've learned a lot from you. How kind of you. And I've learned from you, Charles. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to go see Mrs. Warren's profession at Theatre Row tonight and to buy your ticket for December 13th to see J.O. Sanders and Mary Ann Plunkett in Village Wooing. Links to both in the episode description. And remember to come back next week when I am joined by stage and screen legend Austin Pendleton. After making his debut opposite Barbara Harris in Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad, off-Broadway. He went on to star in the original Fiddler on the Roof as Muddle, The Little Foxes, An American Millionaire, Doubles, The Diary of Anne Frank, the recent Choir Boy, and the upcoming Broadway production of The Minutes. As a director, he directed Elizabeth Taylor and Maureen Stapleton in The Little Foxes, plus Shelter, Spoils of War, and the upcoming Between Riverside and Crazy, among others. On screen, his many credits include My Cousin Vinny, Skidoo, The Front Page, What's Up Doc, The Mirror Has Two Faces, and more. He can currently be seen off-Broadway at the Theatre for the New City in the Dark Outside, and the documentary starring Austin Pendleton is available to stream. You won't want to miss this conversation. Thanks for tuning in.